If you're listening to the history of Vikings, you're doing so via the internet. Today's episode is sponsored by Atlas VPN, a company created to make the internet accessible and secure for everyone. From blocking malicious links, ads, and trackers, notifying you when someone is trying to steal your data, to protecting your devices and allowing you to access worldwide content on platforms such as Netflix while traveling abroad, Atlas VPN has got you covered. There are over 6 million people using Atlas VPN across the world, and you could be one of them by following the link in the description of this episode, which gets you Atlas VPN for just $1.99 a month for three years, plus a 30-day money-back guarantee. You're using the internet to listen to what I hope is your favorite history podcast. Atlas VPN was created to make the internet accessible and secure for everyone. Follow the link in this episode's description to get Atlas VPN for just $1.99 a month for three years, plus a 30-day money-back guarantee. Many thanks to Atlas VPN for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to the History of Vikings. On this podcast, we've done several episodes relating to Norse mythology. We've discussed gods and goddesses such as Thor, Odin, Freya, and Loki. Much like the mythology of ancient Greece, we tend to think of Norse gods as belonging to a pantheon or family of gods. But did, cre- excuse me, but did pre-Christian Scandinavians also embrace this concept? Would every Norseman have venerated multiple deities? Was pre-Christian religion more localized? Perhaps a farmer would pray to a higher power different than that of a fisherman or warrior. Joining me to answer some of my questions today is Dr. Terry Gunnell, a returning guest and professor of folkloristics at the University of of Iceland. Dr. Gunnell, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast Uh, Because this is a a really hot topic, Um, and there's so much we could get into today, but perhaps a good place to start is where do we get, where did we get this concept of a a Norse pantheon from? I think essentially it comes from... um Snorri Sturluson's Prose Edda, and Snorri, of course, put together this this uh, this prose work largely, which is based on poetry, um, where he, in the first, in the sec- second part of it, really, Gilvaginning, he puts together the um, Norse mythology that he's received from poetry, um, and develops that sort of idea um, quite a lot in the book that follows, which is called Skaldskapamal, which is a sort of poetics. But Snorri is the one who who stresses this these ideas of Odin being the the chief god, the head of a family of gods living in Ausgard. Um It's an idea that he's picked up um, 
from oh, it, it's an idea. Of, say that again. It's an idea that he stresses certainly in in his Inglinger saga, his historical work as well, um, where he suggests that that uh, Odin and the and the Isid gods come up from Turkey and then move through Denmark, to go into Sweden, take over Sweden, and then become the chief gods there. Um, and again, this sort of idea of a family of gods. His inform- his basic information, when it comes down to it, that was really based on just a, f- a few, a couple of poems, um, which which stress this sort of idea, um, and a number of references in skaldic poetry, especially, which has the same sort of idea of Odin um, being being the big ruler. But uh, there's, there's a lot of questions that we need to raise about this idea and just accepting it um, blindly without any questions. And not least because, as, we're, as most historians of religion these days will accept, there was a huge variety of of beliefs within Scandinavia, certainly around which involve some of the same gods, same sorts of ideas. And of course, it's the same language, so there's going to be some shared concepts. But nonetheless, we're dealing not with a universal religion based around a book like Islam or Christianity, but something that's orally passed on. That would have varied in terms of community, connections to other countries and things of this kind. So, so the idea certainly of Odin being being the leading god over a family, I think, is something that's, that's highly questionable. I know the historical accuracy of Snorri Sturluson's Prosetta is widely debated, but um, aside from that, is it fair to say or is it fair to assume that Snorri had access to mythological sources that are lost to us? Most definitely, he has he has access to a lot of poetry, um, which people, he and other poets would have would have had to learn as part, learn as part of their craft. He was also living in a um, it's a society where where written texts are certainly coming into um, becoming involved, but also in which oral traditions are being passed on as well. So Snorri had access to a great deal of material some of which come much of which comes from iceland other material that he's picked up from norway certainly rather than denmark or sweden which he had little contact with um and he's without any question he's picking and choosing his material on the basis of a particular agenda um that he has and, and on the basis of the people that he's writing these works for uh heimskringla inglinga saga is being written for the rulers of norway the poetics are being written for the poets, essentially, who are the, the, a little bit like rock stars of, of their own time. Their, their culture, their world isn't very typical. They are people who are hanging around the rulers of Norway a great deal in a particular society. Um, and, and part of their understanding of themselves is that their craft comes from Odin. But nonetheless, if we look at other material, there's a lot of. Uh, uh, if we look at other material, there are a lot of questions that need to be raised about this sort of idea in the world that they inhabit, which is, when it comes down to it, quite limited. That makes a lot of sense. Now, why do you think Snorri sort of implied or presented this concept of a of a pantheon? Uh, or have we falsely interpreted him? Um, is this something that he believed, or is this something he? did as sort of an approach to cater to his specific audience of, of listeners and readers? I think certainly it's it's to do with his particular audience and the world that he wanted, he liked to inhabit and wanted to go on inhabiting. Um, he's, 
Both the poets community and the, the, the community around the Norwegian kings are a very particular community. Um, it's, it's a sort of society that's come into being from about 500 onwards, which is after the time of this big, um, nowadays everybody agrees about it, this big uh, volcano that went off about 536 caused, um, wiped out the sun for several years and harvests and caused a lot of upheaval, uh, political and social within Scandinavia. And almost certainly um, movement of, of large war bands, but also the development of a new kind of rulership, which wasn't based on the local valley or the local area anymore, but now people thinking about becoming kings of the whole of Denmark and the whole of Norway. And what this involves Essentially, um, it involves a number of things, but one, one of the things it involves is the assembly of armies that are made up of people who are not from your particular valley. You're no longer a local warlord. You've become a national king and you need a large army to work for you. Um, this means people from other areas of the country, mercenaries of one kind or another, who will have had different religious backgrounds without any question. Um, what was happening within the halls was the establishment, these new uh, royal halls, was, was the establishment of a sort of pseudo-family, uh, which came instead of the, the clan that used to be there before, whereby the ruler sets himself up as a kind of father figure, a sort of figure that you see even nowadays within Russia, uh, as it used to be with the czars uh, being the, the sort of little little father, Putin's doing the same to a certain extent now. The father figure and the warriors who sign into his, who sign up to this to this army, they are they go will go through particular rituals in a sense, become sort of family members um, under this new ruler, and are then ready to die for him as a, as a sort of father figure. At the same time, you need what these rulers needed to do was to create a new kind of religion or adopt a new kind of religion, which was which related to movement. In the past, up until about five hundred, this is a very general date. Then people would have um, religion would have been very based in the local landscape, um, on small islands and groves and lakes and things of this kind. If you're going to have a moving an army that moves between countries, and not least, for example, into into Britain. You needed to create a new kind of religion whereby people didn't need to go back home to do their worship. And part of that development um, is to take on this sort of ideas that the Germanic tribes had seen in Rome and were certainly seeing also with Christianity in, in um, France and Germany, whereby the ruler, in a sense, makes himself a form of God and underlines his uh, connections to his family connections to to a, to a god, and Odin, as we see regularly, was this sort of father figure, very much like the ruler of the uh, of the hall with his pseudo family. Odin is becomes the all father, the father of all other gods that had existed before. Um, so it seemed that he would have existed as a figure long before, but to my mind, certainly, what's happening is that he's becoming. A sort of all father, a little bit like the um, the Roman emperors had done, as I say, Charlemagne was doing. We had done also in in France and Germany. So yes, it's it's a new political society um, whereby previous gods become under gods, and 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 one god becomes a sort of father figure. Um, 
But this is something that's essentially associated with a particular class of people. These are in the, the courts and in the armies, um, the movable courts, the movable armies uh, in places like uh, Viken around Oslo, Nidaros around Trondheim, um, other central areas, Uppsala in Sweden, and then you have Jelling and Leira in Denmark, where we do find these huge great halls um, with, with these rulers, who it would seem were certainly encouraging the idea of a belief in Odin as a father and the belief in other gods that other, other people would have come with as under gods of one form or another. And that's a very long answer, sorry. No, that, that was just excellent, um, Dr. Gunnell. That's fascinating. Now, you know, if, if pre-Christian Scandinavia was an agrarian society, you know, the humble farmstead, um, perhaps being sort of the center of a, a family unit or a the bedrock of society, whatever the term is in certain regions of Scandinavia. Um, you know, do you think sort of the lay people also embraced this concept of Odin being the, the all father, the father of the other gods, or would they have venerated uh, different deities? They would almost certainly, through the poets at least, have been aware of the poets and the people who traveled, have been, been aware of Odin like they would have been aware of the Christian god, um, which they had nothing against either. Um, but if we look at the information that we have, I would say large, most of Norway, if we look at place names, for example, um, most of Norway, that's where we find Thord place names rather than Olden place names. The Olden place names are limited to the areas where the kings were, were ruling. Um, and these, of course, yes, they are, they are, um, agricultural people, but they're also, um, providing Viking parties. And we, in a sense, need to get away from this, this, um, Dumazilian idea of the three classes. Um, of of society, which as is, has as its roots the sort of Indo-European societies and Indian society. In Scandinavia, a chieftain would have been a priest and um, a ruling figure, a clan head, but also a farmer at the same time. And Dumazil has this idea of the three classes: the priest and the far the priest and the ruler and the farmer, or the or the, or the priest and the, and the warrior and the farmer. These figures in, in the Norwegian fjords, for example, were certainly a blend of all of these. And the, the key point is that, is that if we look at the sagas and we look at the Book of Settlements in Iceland and we look at um, even the historical sagas of the kings of Norway, none of these works, except for Inglinger saga, which is slightly different, none of them ever talks about a family of gods that, that uh, you, you, you call to different gods for different things. Um, what we hear about is the god Thought regularly, and then the god Freyd, who almost certainly was much more important in Sweden. Even the name Freyd means lord, and there's no way that that figure is going to be an underling initially. Of course, most of our material, when we come down to it, is Western Norwegian. This is from Western Norway and Iceland, which is very much the same sort of community of people. We have very little idea of what things would have been like in Denmark, where Odin might have been bigger um, a little bit earlier. And then Sweden, where certainly the, the Varnid gods like Freyr and Freyr and Jörður would have been more important. But in general, yes, um, of course, different ways of life produce different demands. And that particularly applies to the, the world of Odin, which is um, the world of an elite warrior class, 
um, led by a sort of all-father figure, and an all-father figure who lives off wine, apparently, according to Snorri and, and various sources, um, doesn't really eat much. So in a sense, we've got a figure a bit like Boris Yeltsin here. He's somebody who you couldn't trust to look after your, look after your farms at all. Um, but he is very much a, um, a ruling figure, very much like the, the, the kings, the new kings were becoming and has a retinue of people serving him, including Valkyries and other gods working for him. Um, which again, very, would have been very much like these, these new rulers. So the olden worship is, is associated with a, yes, a particular class, a warrior class. Um, and it's though it's that same class that produces a number of poems, certainly skaldic poetry, but poems like Grimnismal, for example, and Vafrudnismal, um, uh, works which Snorri made a great deal of use of. And these certainly have this sort of idea of a an Ausgarthad with a whole range of gods living together. But other poems make no mention of, of Odin being involved along with along with Thor or Freya. Um, so clearly, we've got a lot of differences here, and part of the same thing is the is the, is the creation of Valhut. Um, and I say creation because that too, this idea that Snorri underlines of the Val Valhut Valhalla, and the proper pronunciation is Valhut, the the Hall of the Chosen. It's a, it's a place um, for an elite for warriors um, who go there when they die on the battlefield, but. Um, when it comes down to it, what that introduces, first of all, is a very Christian idea of re- reward for the present life. And other um, earlier on, we hear about an emphasis on life. But the new rulers needed to be able to tell their their soldiers, their warriors, that um, there would be a reward, a reward for dying on the battlefield. Um, there was a next much better world where there was a lot of booze and a lot of babes and a lot of uh, continuous continuous food. Um, but this is this is something that's clearly under development for a particular class, um, because we find talk about hell, which Snorri puts down and, and makes a, a place for um, the sick and the infirm and the old. Uh, a lot of other material talks about hell being a place where warriors go. Baldur goes there. Um, so Odin himself dies of illness, and clearly. He goes on to be in charge of this next world. So again, there's something else that was under creation for a particular purpose. Again, another very long answer. I'm sorry. No, 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 please. This is excellent. Now, let's talk about the concept of the afterlife, because as you mentioned, you know, what's commonly rendered in English as Valhalla is usually understood as being a, a place where those slain in battle would go after they they died. Odin's Hall, the Hall of the Chosen, the Hall of the Slain. Now, the average you know, pre-Christian Nordic layperson um, who wasn't necessarily off, you know, going a Viking and raiding, what would their concept, as far as we know, have been of the afterlife? Well, the most widespread idea, when I have a student, an, um, an MA student working on this at the moment, writing a very, very fine um, thesis, which is finishing, which she goes through all of the, all of the source material. The most widespread idea, which is part of daily language, is the idea of a place called hell. H-E-L, um, a word that's later adopted as a translation for the Christian, for the sort of Hebrew and Christian um, after afterlife. And hell is 
Essentially, when it comes down to it, uh, um, an underground world. Um, it's based on the idea which everybody knew of of the grave mound that you're either buried or cremated, and then put, but in both cases put into a grave mound, which at the same time as you construct it is not hidden under the landscape, but rises above the landscape, almost like a sort of womb in one way or another, but made of stones. A dark place, a place in the ground um, that you then proceed to. And as a, as a means of closure, of course, we we develop these ideas of afterlifes. Um, now, the idea of the afterlife of hell, there's a lot of discussion about the word, whether the word hell just means the place, or as is sometimes suggested by the sources, it's also a woman, a female ruler who governs this afterlife. Um, and... What's interesting about the material that we get, yes, it's a, it's not a very terribly comfortable place to be. It's dark. But nonetheless, many sources talk about um, this female ruler living in a hall where she receives warriors and other people, very much like an earlier version of, 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 of Valhalla when it comes down to it. What's particularly interesting um, is that in the other other accounts that we get, there are a number of other female figures mentioned. Hell on one side, and then we have Freya, who, according to one poem, is supposed to get half of the people dead on the battlefield. We have Raun, who gets the people who drown under the sea. We get Gevyun, for example, who receives, uh, apparently, virgins in the next life. All of these are female figures. And the same applies, of course, to the, the Valkyriot, who, in the Odinic mythology, have become servants of Odin who collect the dead off the battlefield. They also become, in at least two poems, barmaids serving Odin and, and the other warriors and bringing, out, bringing wine to them. But the word Valkyrie itself means the chooser of the slain, not that they're serving him by choosing, but that they, um, they choose themselves. And that's a job that's also applied to some of these other female figures. In all cases, it brings us back to the idea of, a, of another world um, a sort of inverted Alice in Wonderland world um, ruled by women, where women are on horseback, they have weapons, they wear armor, and they, in some accounts, we get the idea of the everlasting battle that we see in Valhalla later on, where warriors fight all day long. That's also associated with female figures. So it does seem that we're moving um, from an earlier idea, very widespread idea, which is also found in some ways up up in the, the, the area around Finland, a world of the dead, a dark world um, ruled by women, which is later on taken over, at least in the warrior areas by, by Odin and the idea of Valhalla, um, where hell is suddenly turned into a half-dead figure, ugly old woman within the ground. Um, I've associated, associated this slightly with, and this is pure supposition, um, the mere fact that we have festivals um, which seem to be associated with women called the the, the Disa Blot or the, the Sacrifice of the Desit, which was the precursor of Halloween at the beginning of winter, which was the beginning of the year. And this is a female festival um, to do with female figures. In the only account that we have, there are um, the men are inside and the women are outside and they're on and a number of women on horseback arrive and kill of a male figure who dares to walk outside during this festival. And in Iceland, 
the the uh, symbol of winter is a troll woman called Grilla. If you go to the Celtic area, you have a figure called the Kayak, the old woman. Um, and you have women prophesying at the beginning of the year in, in November about how the year is going to be, these these or norns. Everything about the wintertime seems to be associated with women. And again, darkness, women, a female world, where in fact, and in most most uh, farms at this time, um, women ruled the farmstead. They, they had the keys, they ruled the slaves um, within the farmstead. And if we think about the summer and the winter and the difference between them, the winter was the time everybody moved into the female area, into a hall, roughly one run by women, um, as all of the crops, of course, are in the ground and in the darkness, um, preparing to come up, the world of darkness, the world of mystery. Whereas the summer is the time of going out, going to market, going to war, doing legal gatherings. Um, so again, an association with maybe death and life, uh, which we still get hanging around in the idea of uh, the idea of Halloween, um, and women associated with the world of death. Um, if that makes sense, at least um, for, for what for what you asked beforehand. So most the, the feeling, at least my feeling is that the, the more widespread idea was um, of an underground subterranean world of the dead, which was more associated with female figures and, and the, the feminine rather than the male. Whereas, and later on, Valhut, as we move into a very male macho warrior society, Valhalla, Valhut starts taking over from this and has to subvert it. They can't get rid of it, but you subvert it and make it part of your own image. Hence, the Valkyries start serving Odin rather than being choosers of choosers themselves. That is fascinating indeed. Now, and feel free to correct me at any time if this is incorrect. I, I'd love to mm-hmm. talk about the uh, significant role of sort of the the seeress, the priestess, the vulva, the um, shamanic uh, female figure in uh, pre-Christian Norse society. Is that is that true? Is that a role that was typically occupied by women in a society? And if so, um, I'd love to if you could just kind of tell our listeners about that kind of unique function in a pre-Christian Norse society. The idea of the Volova, um, our present idea of the Volova uh, or the Seeress is based on a number of poems. We have Volus Bal, the prophet of the Seeress, where Odin goes to this, this female figure and asks her to tell him about the beginning of the world and what's going to follow later on at Ragnarok. We have another poem called Baldur's Dream, the dreams of Baldur, where again, Odin goes down into the subterranean world, this female world, um, where we have a, a female gatekeeper down there. Um, and he calls on this this female dead Volva to tell him about um, Baldur's dreams and what's going to happen. And then we have a number, then we have um, a number of saga accounts, the most famous one, which is uh, Eric Saga Rosa, the saga of Eric the Red, where we have an account of a woman who visits farms at the beginning of winter, um, she's not got an address. She's she's clearly comes in from the outside to the sort of male world. And a lot of detail in this account, um, which raises some questions since it's an account written in about written down in about 12, 1300, um, about something that's apparently happened about two, 200 years before. But nonetheless, there are a number of key features here that she comes in the beginning of winter, at the beginning of the evening, and her and her um, the beginning of darkness, 
And then she does her prophecy the next day after eating a particular meal um, with the hearts of all a number of animals from the area. And she needs to have a platform that she goes up on, which means it certainly wasn't inside the farmhouse. So I would say it's, it's, it's got to be, if, if it was inside the farmhouse, her head would be amongst the meat and the other things that were smoking up in the ceiling. It must be outside somewhere. And I would guess the most logical place would be on the borderline between between the world of the wild and the world of, of, of the civilized, the world of the of, of the dead and the living. And she goes up onto her onto her platform. She has a particular stick with her, and we hear about such sticks uh, in Laxdala Saga as well when they dig up a grave of a woman like this. And archaeology has shown a number of particular sticks um, made of metal. And of course, wood would have rotted by this time. So what we have left is made of metal, which as Neil Price and Lasha Gardella, archaeologists have, have shown, are essentially found in female graves. And it looks like they're found in graves of women who had the role of being CRSs. So there's this stick, there's the seat, there's the, there's the platform. And interestingly enough, again, she needs a group of singers who are all women. Uh, again, Beginning of winter, female festival, women associated with it solely. There are no men in this group. And she needs somebody who can sing for her um, a particular song. And there's a Christian woman there, a very um, great saga figure, which is a, a whole other question, who says that she's heard the song and she sings it very beautifully. And uh, it seems, this looks, this, this account feels like one of the earliest accounts of dance. Um, because they, uh, the women are supposed to slaughring, which means basically stamp a circle or bang a circle. And that, to my mind, points to the idea of, of dance. The word slough is often used in Scandinavian later on for dances. So a dance, a ring of dancing women, she's up on the platform. And then afterwards, she comes down and says that she's spoken to a number of nature spirits. Um, the song that was sung was called the, the Vard Lokur uh, or Loka. There are two different versions of it. And it can suggest the idea that she was communing in some way with nature spirits from the area who come to her or she leaves her body and goes to to find out about the future for the, the whole year for the farm. We get another account in in um, uh, in, in Urvar Odds saga which is very, very similar, a very similar sort of name for the figure, Heather, I think is her name. Um, and she too comes around at that same sort of period. She has equipment with her um, and she has a, a, as a group of singers. So there's a number of key factors that are, that are repeated in these accounts, which suggests that they are not based on literary borrowings, but based on um, some sort of oral memory, it's cultural memory by this point, which means that it's been passed on by society. And in all of these cases, we have women who are doing this. Um, women's association with with uh, foreknowledge, we find also in connection with a number of the goddesses. Um, men, on the other hand, are supposed to, you need to go to women to get this knowledge. The the ritual in question called seidr, um, which isn't really, we can't translate it directly as magic, it's a particular sort of ritual, is something that Odin apparently picks up from the goddess Freya. It's something he doesn't have naturally. He has to learn from someone else. And he's accused of being perverted or effeminate by making use of this to see into the future. So everything about um, foreknowledge and the ability to see into the future is associated with women. 
And that raises a number of interesting questions because we're wondering why should women, sometimes associated with fertility, be associated with a world of darkness? Where should women be able to see into the future and into the past? And I think there's a number of possible explanations for this, which is, first of all, the female body. Um, when we come down to it, um, women are born out of women, are born out of women, are born out of women. Um, it's almost like a, almost like the idea of the Russian doll, um, whereas guys are more of a, a um, uh, ex- external uh, impetus of some kind in in in, in the continuing the, the continuation of of, of the uh, generations. But women out of women out of women out of women, um, and a connection in a sense with the past and a connection with the future immediately. Um, and you do often find, even in our belief services that we've done in Iceland, women are more open to ideas of, of the supernatural than men tend to be. Um, and, and, and in a sense, we need to get away from the idea, if we talk about fertility, certainly Freya's never called a fertility goddess. She's a goddess of love um, when she's described by Snorri. But fertility, um, we need to look at it in a slightly different way. Fertility, by anybody who knew nature in the past, Fertility comes out of death, um, the rotting of the, of the leaves and the trees under the ground produces the next life. Um, so it's, it's quite natural to see fertility as a matter of um, continuation, okay, which involves the dark world, the growth under the ground, the dark, uh, the, the, and, and death. Uh, out of death comes life. And, and this is part of the, of the continuing circle that's associated with female, the female. So that's, that's uh, again, a very long answer, which touches on a number of things. But, um, yeah, hopefully that answers what you were asking. Well, most definitely. You know, when talking about kind of our sources for Norse gods and goddesses, um, the first two that come to most people's minds are the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda. Aside from those sort of two key mainstream sources, what are some other uh, sources that you think are valuable and informing us about, you know, the Norse kind of um, not pantheon, but collection of gods and goddesses uh, that you would like to uh, let listeners know about? Well, certainly alongside um, both the Poetic Edda, which to my mind at least uh, has, much of it has roots in in, um, in mainland Scandinavia rather than Iceland, which but it belongs to an oral tradition, which means that it's developing all the time. And we need to remember with these poetic sources, they're written down, all that we know about them in terms of dating is that they're written down in about 1270 and uh, maybe a little bit earlier in the case of Snorri Edda. Um, but this is material that was not composed with pen in hand. It was composed um, by people living in the oral tradition who were thinking of not only sound, but also visual presentation. Think more of slam poets as, as one of my students has described it. Um, it's, it's a presentation in, in time and space and sound, a little bit like music nowadays. Um, so if we think of this other, other material of this kind, which has been passed on in the oral tradition, we have the skaldic poetry. A lot of people will say these days that Eddic poetry clearly changed a lot in passing. It's been strongly influenced by Christianity. Maybe a center, maybe a line here and there, but we can. Never, it's impossible to talk about a poem in the same way as we do nowadays. It's something that developed and changed. And the same applies to this other material, which is the skaldic poetry, um, which some of which is apparently, according to the sagas it's contained in, 
and in Snorri-Edda, which also passes a lot on, it's composed apparently in the pre-Christian period, around about 800, 900, and then passed on um, whole for 300 years, which is a crazy idea. Of course, it changes. And of course, it's, it's people manage get lines wrong as they do, even trying to remember rock songs nowadays, if they've only heard them. Um, but nonetheless, some of this material does seem to have roots, roots, and I say roots rather than the whole poem, um, back in the, back in pre-Christian times amongst people who were living around the kings and rulers as part of the, as part of the court. Um, and a lot of the, we have a lot of poetic symbols and um, images that are used in poetry, which certainly refer back to mythology. So while we don't have whole stories there, we get hints at stories and accounts that are around. So yeah, we have, we have that as well. And then of course we have archaeology and um, the trouble with archaeology is that it, is that it lacks texts. Um, we only have objects, but we do occasionally have iconographic material or objects which are, which show particular figures. So, for example, there's a, there's a wonderful little brooch which shows a figure clearly with wings attached to his arms, which seems to be like the story of Verland that, that we hear about. Um, the story of Verland, uh, Wayland the Smith, is also found on, in, in visual form on the Frank's casket in, in Britain and also on... Um, some of the Gotland stones, it seems. Um, so yeah, we, we have visual images which seem to back up mythology. Um, there's a few runic inscriptions, um, which go back certainly to pre-Christian times where we get the idea of Thor, of Thor um, blessing runes um, and the idea of the hammer being used to bless, just like it is in some of the Eddic poetry where Thor's hammer blesses weddings, for example. Um, but again, it's interesting that Olden is very rarely associated with runes, as we'd expect him to be, since he's said to have collected the runes from the other world. The figure that blesses the runes again is this figure Thought, who is the most widespread figure throughout Scandinavia, and is, of course, naturally, um, in all ways, he's connected to thunder and lightning, very much like, very much like Jupiter and Zeus, um, a natural sky god um, who almost certainly for most people, to my mind, he was the ruling figure so rather than, rather than Odin. And we certainly get hints of this in certain, uh, certain Anglo-Saxon texts like uh, Alfred's work, which suggests about Thord being a ruling figure. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a number of sources. We also, we also have works like Beowulf, of course, which, which um, reflect certain ideas that we find in, in the Attic poetry. There's a lot of a lot of sources out there um, that we can make use of, but we need to be, as I say, aware of the fact that much of the material that we have is a West is a West Norse, and B that it comes from a particular elite um, class of society, which doesn't necessarily reflect the way that it, the average farmer or chieftain living living in Viking land in the Western fjords would have believed in. Well, Dr. Gunnell, this has been uh, a very exciting conversation for both me and our listeners. I'm very sure of that. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to um, kind of plug some of your works. I'll certainly put a, a link to your, you know, academia.edu profile in the description of this episode and uh, any other works that you'd like us to be aware of. It's my work basically uh, has two, two sides. One, one this, this is one of them in terms of the history of religion. And, and the things I'm saying here 
remember a, a lot of its suggestions um, based on the material that I have. And, we, and there's a lot of us discussing these ideas back and forth. Um, so this isn't a be all and end all. As I say to my students, never trust an academic. Just simply look at the material they present and see if it makes sense. In the same way that we should never trust a politician or a banker when it comes down to it. But look at the material, see if it makes sense. Go back to the origins and don't trust what's being thrown at you. Um, so certainly... Uh, Look at this material and see if it makes sense. But the, the, uh, so I've written a lot about history of religion. This question, certainly of the pantheon, I've been raising in recent years. There are other articles which look at female figures and their association with water. I've been discussing a little bit in recent years the idea of a, a division of the year into, as I mentioned earlier on, into, into winter and summer, male and, um, female and male. And then, of course, the other thing that I work on is this question of performance that we need to consider these these etic poems not as literature, but something that was experienced um, in terms of both sound and vision, that you need to think of a little bit like when we're going to a, to a rock concert or a play. We, we don't, we're not just using our, our, we're not reading the words, we're experiencing it by looking at the surroundings, the sound, the rhythms, the shadows, the darkness, um, people throwing bones at each other in the room. How do you get them to shut up and things of this kind? Um, so the performative side, you'll find that in a number of my articles as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Dr. Terry Gunnell, it has been such a pleasure having you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've greatly enjoyed our chat. Thank you. No, it's been good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to the History of Vikings. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review on your podcast platform of choice and tune in again for another episode.